Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Consumer's Law Journal on Law Talk Radio. This is your host, Nick Augustine, the law publicist. This show is brought to you by Law Publicist Communications, a legal marketing and public relations agency. At Law Publicist Communications, we help lawyers tell other people about their practice. We help our clients with legal marketing, copywriting, and public relations. Get on the map and stay there with Law Publicist Communications. Today's guest is Carolyn Reinark-Wolf, and she is a senior partner of the law firm of Abrams and Fensterman, and she is a partner of the firm's mental health law practice. Ms. Wolf holds a JD from Hofstra University School of Law and MS in Health Services Administration from the Harvard School of Public Health and an MBA in Management from the Hofstra University School of Business. Ms. Wolf's practice concentrates in the areas of mental health and health Healthcare law. We do welcome our callers this afternoon. We have a great show for you. Our programming is politically neutral and objective, and counterpoints to views expressed are always welcomed. You can dial in at area code 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in our caller queue. The telephone number again is 917-889-9732. By way of short disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Communication with attorneys on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. Also, Law Talk Radio is produced by Law Publicist Communications, an ALRPRA incorporated agency, and Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all callers have the right to remain confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. We want to let you know about a couple upcoming events before we get into our show today. These are coming from the Chicago Lawyer Magazine. Their Off the Pages series presents Taking Care of Business on September 20th, 2011. Three panelists of interest are number one, how to grow your book of business in this challenging economy, two, building a relationship with your in-house lawyers, and three, motivating and keeping your young talent. The panelists presenting at this event are top attorneys and executives with valuable insight. The event will be held by from 7.30 to 11 a.m. at the University Club in Chicago. For early bird registration and more information, please call Olivia Clark at area code 312-644-4033, or you can send her an email at O-C-L-A-R-K-E at L-B-P-C dot com. MCLE credit is pending for this event, and sponsor opportunities are available. Also, the same series on October 18th, sorry, October 18th, 2011, will present their Taking Diversity Seriously a panel where they have two panelists. The subject matters are, one, being a woman in this legal industry, how do you navigate the challenging waters, and two, a detailed look at diversity statistics. In addition to the panelists presenting in this event, the Chicago Lawyer presents keynote speaker Aaron Rivas of NextGens. Rivas is a Chicago Lawyer columnist and diversity expert who will present, quote, a status report on diversity. Again, 7.30 to 11 at the University and Club in Chicago. Contact Olivia Clark for more information. Now for today's show, our subject matter, attorney and mental health legal expert Ms. Carolyn Reinark-Wolf is experienced in hoarding cases. Attorney Wolf understands both the clinical and legal issues involved in cases involving accusations of hoarding and the underlying legal backdrops in which we see these matters. 
Today, we take a closer look at the chain of events often leading to legal cases involving hoarding issues. I will ask Attorney Wolf about her experience working with the clinical issues as well. We'll also talk a little bit about the prosecution and defense of cases where hoarding is described uh, and is a central uh, issue in the matter. Our popular culture seems ironically obsessed with hoarding, and we come close to identifying the behavior as a crime itself in many situations. So thank you all for tuning in. This should be an interesting program. And Carolyn, let's dive right in and say hello. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. It's a very, you know, it's it's a, a little pun there with um, that our culture seems obsessed with hoarding, and uh, hoarding often is described as uh, within the OCD range of uh, behaviors. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us what your your background is, uh, how you got interested uh, in in this topic, and how we got to be on the show today. Um, thank you. Well, I um, actually was a hospital administrator before I went to law school, so I'm very familiar with the healthcare system. I did risk management for m- several years, and um, my practice, as it's grown over the years, um, includes representing hospitals in any kinds of issues involving mental health, uh, mental capacity, decision making, surrogacy, and so- surrogate decision making for healthcare and so on, and I work very closely with the courts, um, with mental health uh, care institutions, and specifically with families and family members who have mental health issues, substance abuse issues, developmental issues, and so on. Um, and so over the years, um, many of the cases that I've gotten have been specific to the hoarding issue, the hoarding problem. And you're right, it's it's actually thought to be a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. And there are um there's a lot of discussion about where is the appropriate place to treat it, how to treat it, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, um, what are some of the legal interventions that can be utilized, um, which we try to do sometimes, um, as well as the practical or clinical interventions that are available. So one of the one of the things that jumps uh, off the page for me is that you may be a little bit less of an uh, um, less of an interested party, I suppose, when looking at hoarding issues. Um, that it seems like your position uh, would necessarily uh, render you a more objective party. Um, I, the only reason I su- you know suggest or go down that path is that so many people I have talked to in the area of hoarding uh, have some sort of interest in the outcome either way. Well, as an attorney, as a mental health attorney, it's my job to work either with families who have a a loved one who has been deemed to be a hoarder or where it's self-evident that there's hoarding behavior, um, to intervene in situations where the individual gets caught up in the criminal justice system, as you've alluded to. Um, These matters show up a lot. Um, You know, I live in New York and work in New York, and so these issues show up a lot in the landlord-tenant issue, co-op, co-op, condo boards getting involved in this where someone is hoarding in their apartment, and it's communal living, so clearly it spills over into other tenants in a building um, people who get involved in the healthcare system. There's a lot of discussion about should people be committed to a psychiatric unit for treatment of hoarding behavior, and does it fit into what we generally think of the, as the access one or the more serious um, mental illnesses um, that are, you know, that are part of um, the mental illness spectrum. 
Um, it also comes about in cases where um, guardianships are brought and where people are appointed guardian or there's a need for a guardian in cases where someone really can't make the decision alone to clean up their apartment or to go into treatment or to change their living situation. Um, so we really represent clients, families, co-op boards um, in really almost every aspect, different aspects of legal practice, whether it's a custody, a landlord-tenant, a negligence, um, a straight psychiatric matter, or gets caught up in the criminal justice system. Yeah, so your firm, I see that your firm also has several uh, individuals who practice in this area. Is your firm um, concentrated on health care law? Um, yeah, that's the mainstay of our law practice is healthcare law, and then we are a subset of the healthcare law practice. Our my individual department and practice for many years is very specific to mental health issues. Um, it's actually the only practice in the country that I know of that you know concentrates specifically in this area and has the team approach to dealing with these sorts of clients and cases. Um, we work with clinicians, we work with healthcare institutions, we work with case managers. Um, I work with safety and security experts as well where there are danger issues involved. So it's it's a team and a multidisciplinary approach to the specific um, mental health issue that we're concerned about. In this case, it would be a hoarding situation. Now, when did, historically, when did you start seeing hoarding uh, issues popping up, um, I, I often wonder with a critical eye uh, with a lot of media and there are a lot of shows uh, out there, and we have talked to people before who've been on those shows. The uh, One individual was on a hoarding cleanup program. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just curious as to your thoughts on when when did this issue really come into light and how much of it is really uh, prevalent uh, in society and how much of it is the media? It's well, hoarding has been around, I think, since the beginning of time. Um, I don't think it's a newly discovered or a new phenomenon. I think um, as technology increases and as media exposure increases, we're identifying it more, we're looking at it more closely, people are becoming more aware of it. But it's been around, um, you know, really for a very long time. Um, families were closer, they kept it under wraps, they tried to deal with it individually. Um, the, men, the psychiatric um, practice and expertise, you know, wasn't as available as it is now in terms of medications and types of treatments and counseling and other peripheral services such as case management, for example, or guardianship were not available years ago as they are today. Um, and certainly, um, you know, as it's come to light more and more by the media, people are coming forward and saying, yes, um, you know, I know a family, or I had a situation, or I lived in a building where, or there was a fire in, in the building where I lived, and we learned that it was due to hoarding. Um, so I think it's just out there more, you know, thanks to the media, um, thanks to the Internet, but it's been around for a long time. And I will. Here's another question. Um, it has been around for. I, I do acknowledge that this behavior has been around for a long time. Um, 
I just wonder about the application of the label, and I think I wonder how quick people are to attach those. And you know, and I wonder how much that can come about in a case where it's suggested. Um, by way of background, I'll suggest my grandmother went through the Great Depression. She kept everything when her uh, house, when we cleaned it out in in the late '80s, she had boxes of rubber bands. She had things all over the place. And I think back now, and I look at a lot of the hoarding things and this behavior is suggested. You could almost suggest that grandma was a hoarder, but then everyone I know who went through the Great Depression seemed to have behavior like that, saving things. And I, I think a lot of, you know, I look at parents and I look at my father, uh, you know, tends to not like to throw things away. It, you know, the point that I'm making is any of these things could be easily, you know, how easily can these be, um, you know, chalked up to people who collect and hang on to things versus hoarding? You know, when is it actually a problem? Well, I. The, the approach we take in my practice is that we're interested in what the diagnosis is, but it's really not the mainstay of how we approach the problem. More important than what you label it is the behavior, the intervention, the safety issues, um, the resolution of the conflict or the problem or um, any other legal intervention that might might be necessary or legal challenge that might come about. So if you go into someone's home, for example, and you see clutter and you see an inability to walk through the apartment um, you know, easily, and there are certain hallmark symptoms of hoarding that, you, that are identified and that you can learn to, to identify. So it's really more not so much what we're calling it, but what, what is the lifestyle and what is the result of it. You know, when it starts to become dangerous or safety issues or infringement on other people's rights, um, that's when you know, that's when you start to look at the behaviors and the resolutions and the interventions. So, yes, one person's liking to collect rubber bands may be another person's symptom of hoarding. Um, and it really goes to degree and it goes to sort of the overall picture that you're looking at. You know, collecting boxes of rubber bands if they're in a corner or in a basement and you can still use your kitchen and your bathrooms and walk through your apartment and sleep in your bed and not present a danger to your neighbors or to yourself, then it's just somebody who likes to collect things. Um, once you start to move into the identified symptoms of hoarding behavior and they start to present a, a limitation or a problem or, you know, in many cases, clearly a danger to themselves or others, that's when they're more clearly identified as being hoarders. And again, regardless of what you label them, so to speak, you really want to address the symptoms and the big picture and the need for a, an intervention, whether it be safety or hospitalization or treatment. Very good comments, and I thank you for all those. And we're going to pause for a quick break, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to ask you um, on your point, creating a danger to themselves and others. If you, I know you can't uh, give names or too many specifics, but an example of how a person with hoarding uh, issues might be creating a danger to themselves or others. So we're going to ask that question after we come back. We're going to pause for a quick set of commercial breaks, and our first commercial sponsor is the Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. 
If your marketing collateral and materials and slogans infringe on another's intellectual property rights, you may need the legal services to advance your creativity and guard against trademark infringement. You can call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Chicagoland attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. The law office of Nancy K. Ducharme is there to help you with your advertising copy review. Get in touch with Nancy today by visiting www.n.com nkdlaw.com and by dialing 708-444-7900. Again, that number is 708-444-7900. Secondly, from Peak Marketing and Sales, if you haven't met Mary Erlane yet, then you should listen up because she can help you make more money. Mary is a well-known marketing and business person all over Chicagoland for her executive coaching and unique abilities in helping people with connecting the dots and removing the barriers to business goals. Mary is the president of Peak Marketing and Sales Incorporated, and these renowned coaching and consulting services are available to business associations, organizations, and teams to bring about measurable results. Call Mary today at area code 630-768-1422, telephone number again, 630-768-1422, or visit Peak Marketing online at peakmsi.com. Again, that's www.peakmsi.com. Now back to our Law Talk Radio program. We encourage our listeners to call in with questions. Please dial 917-889-9732, option one to be placed in the caller queue. Questions or comments can also be submitted through email or through the contact page at our main website. Back now with Carolyn Reichert. Carolyn Reinhardt-Wolf. Carolyn, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh, those who create dangers to themselves and others. And if you could give us a a short example, we'd appreciate that. Um, Well, I had a case many years ago where um, it was a man who was living alone. His wife had died many years earlier. He had no children and uh, lived in a a building, owned a co-op apartment, Um, was seen by neighbors coming in and out of his apartment, looking pretty clean, pretty together. Um, Turned out he actually belonged to a gym down the street and would use the gym to shower and change his clothes. Um, He had a significant, he had amassed a significant amount of money. Um, But over time, he became um, more combative with his neighbors, um, more nasty, Um, He would leave bags of garbage um, out in the hallways, and so he would obstruct traffic. Um, Neighbors were concerned about what was in those bags of garbage. Um, And ultimately, after asking him to clean up the bags that he would leave in the hallway, um, he was becoming more confrontational. um, And ultimately, the building decided that they were concerned about his behavior. He wouldn't let anyone into his apartment. At one point, um, he actually had a small fire in his apartment, and the firemen could not get um, into the apartment through the front door. Um, So over time, neighbors and the co-op board itself became more and more concerned. Um, They ultimately went to court, uh, to landlord-tenant court, but the judge, in hearing sort of the background to all of this um, was concerned personally about the individual and asked that a guardian be appointed. 
So um, there was a whole court proceeding. A guardian was appointed and was given court authorization to enter the apartment and see what his living conditions were like, as well as the authority to work with him on if there was a problem, cleaning up the apartment, getting him services, and so on. Um, he was very unhappy with the idea of a guardianship and someone kind of intervening in his life, and he contacted my practice and asked if I would represent him as his personal attorney. Um, when I arrived at the apartment, I was unable to walk through the front door. Um, I literally had to sort of slither around the door jam to get into the apartment, and once in the apartment, it was almost impossible to move any place. Um, there were little pathways that went in different directions, um, but it, it really is one of those you know it when you see it. Um, and I started to make my way through the apartment to see what the conditions were like, and um, there was no usable kitchen, no usable bathrooms, no available sleeping space. I mean, it was just floor-to-ceiling piles of possessions, some old, some new, some used, some never touched, um, it just kind of went on and on and on, and um, the guardian arrived a short time after I did and made an announcement that they were going to be hiring a cleaning service, which they had court authority to do, and start to clean up the apartment because it wasn't safe, which it really wasn't. Um, as As the cleaning crew arrived, the man who was my client really couldn't tolerate the idea of someone touching and now starting to discard the possessions. And that's one of the hallmark symptoms of hoarding is the anxiety that goes along with the cleanup or the discarding of possessions. Um, and sadly, ultimately, um, he was so dis decompensated from the emotional response to the court authority given to the guardian to do a cleanup and to make the place safe apartment safe, he was ultimately hospitalized um, and actually did quite well in the hospital. He was treated with medication and therapy, um, spent several weeks in the hospital, and he actually did quite well and was able to come home. Um, and in the time that he was in the hospital, the guardian continued the cleanup of the apartment and the reorganizing and, you know, trying to salvage as much as they could of what was untouched and, and new possessions versus things that clearly needed to be discarded. Um, and so that was really a positive outcome to a very difficult initial situation. Um, but that's not always the case. Um, oftentimes people are hospitalized as a result of this type of scenario and spend a long time, come back, um, the process starts again, they decompensate, and you sort of get the revolving door situation. Um, some people have to be removed from that apartment. It's a trigger for the behavior, and so we often work with the courts to see if we can relocate the person and um, provide enough supervision where we can get more of a handle on the repeat of that type of behavior. Wow. Uh, that, there's so much of a process there. I had no idea it was so. there was so much involved. Um, how's the person doing today? Actually living um, in a smaller apartment, so there's less room to collect things. Um, I put case management services in place. I'm a very big fan of case managers. There are psychiatric case managers, nurses, or social workers who are specially trained by my practice um, to work with my staff. 
and um, who um, go in and oversee the day-to-day living situation of an individual. Um, They can go in every day. They can go in once a week. It depends on what the needs are of the person living in the community. But it's someone who's really following closely the behavior and the living situation. So should he begin to start the behavior over again, there's someone who can identify that early on, notify the therapist, intervene more quickly so that it doesn't get to the point um, that it had been when I first got involved in this case. Sure. Uh, That sounds like a good idea, and it seems like it is really an ongoing uh, struggle for one who is uh, you know, finds himself in that situation. Uh, let me ask you, what types of things generally have you seen people hoarding? Do they have a tendency um, towards certain objects? Uh, is it limited to um, objects, or what about animals, or um, you know, other things? Well, there are different types of hoarding. Some are excessive acquisition of just possess- um, possessions, and it could be anything from pencils to pens to art supplies to newspapers to books to clothing. It really runs the gamut of things that someone can purchase. Um, Some of it will also depend on how much um, of the, how many available resources there are. Um, my particular client had a lot of money, so it could go online or could call catalogs and order you know, 16 pairs of the same shoes, could go to Staples and buy hundreds of packages of mechanical pencils. Um, people with less financial means tend to do more garbage picking and garbage hoarding, going through garbage cans, going through um, things in incinerator rooms you know, that other tenants have thrown out and collecting those kinds of things. Some things broken, some things um, unusable, some things that have just been discarded that still are usable, but where the individual really doesn't use them for the purpose for which they were intended. Um, And then you have the other type of hoarding, which is animal hoarding. And those are the cases we hear about on the news um, a lot more lately, where people collect, um, you know, animals, um, don't care for them very well, um, kind of lose sight of the fact that they're living creatures and need to be fed and cleaned and so on. Um, but the the majority of cases really are more possession hoarding than than animal hoarding. Um, uh, what is it? A sense of control. Uh, is that the the general school of thought that it's control and management? Are those some of the things that those who are engaging in hoarding behaviors are likely? That's maybe the secondary gain. I don't know. I mean, from the experts I work with, and we work with a whole array of psychiatrists and psychologists and um, social workers who have expertise in this area. Um, it doesn't seem to be an issue of control. It seems to be very directly related to anxiety, um, to just a disorder that somehow there's something in the brain that causes the individual to believe that certain things are of value and need to be kept when in reality they're either not of value or don't need to be kept or have gone past the time that they are of value Um, And then the anxiety kicks in and they just can't discard it. So, you know, we all have things that we've used or we've had for years that that don't work anymore or that um, we can buy an updated one. People with um, this type of disorder 
aren't able to discern the fact that it's of no use or value any longer and there's a benefit to discarding it. Um, the anxiety kicks in where even though they may recognize the toaster doesn't work anymore, um, are just completely unable to throw out the toaster, for example. Because in their mind, it may have some value, it may have some use, um, ben useful benefit down the road. Um, you know, it's it's there's some psychological and chemical reason why their brain won't allow them to look at that and say, you know, it's no longer of any use or it's dangerous and it needs to be discarded. You know, I think a lot more about the the animals, and you know, we all have heard the story of the you know the cat lady who has all the cats um, and doesn't know when to stop. But what about what about adoption? I, I heard a story about someone who had adopted what seemed to me like an unreasonable amount of foster children. Um, is, are there any cases that you've seen uh, where people have looked into hoarding people? That I actually have never come across in over 20 years of doing a mental health law practice. <laughs> Maybe that's good. Um, yeah, I guess never that's, know. that's a good thing. I mean, you also have more intervention and sort of a double check on that because um, the foster care system, the child protective services systems, you know, are involved in those cases. So someone is coming into the home and, you know, seeing what's going on, hopefully, you know, more often than not. Also, you have children who eventually grow up and can speak. And so you have a situation where it's a living, speaking person in addition to the individual who's in the home and who can hopefully at some point say this is just not a normal way to live. Um, but it's it's very it's a very intrusive illness. In other words, it impedes space, it impedes functioning, it impedes safety. Um, you know the the symptoms again are 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 clearly defined, and you you do know it when you see it. You know if you go into a hoarding situation, um, it's rare, if ever, that it's a, there's a usable kitchen, that the refrigerator has fresh clean food in it. Um, that there's a place to sleep. Usually there's so much stuff just piled all over the rooms and the beds and the chairs um, that people sleep on doggy bags or on uh, doggy beds or on the floor at some point because they can't get near the bed to sleep in it. Um, there are unusable bathrooms. That's one of the symptoms of hoarding where um, it's completely overtaken by, you know, just a need to put things in a place and you run out of room at some point. Um, but there's also a psychological aspect, I am told by my um, clinical experts, um, about, you know, not using a bathroom, for example. So, you know, again, you pretty much know it when you see it, um, and then it becomes a, a matter of degree. It becomes a matter of how early you can intervene, and it becomes a matter of putting together a plan of services to address the psychological aspects, the safety ex aspects, the legal aspects, um, and, you know, tease those apart and address them one by one. Wig, one by one, I, I agree. That's the only and start at the beginning. Uh, you have a long, a long, um, a long path towards recovery and normal living after one develops. And I'm assuming that these behaviors 
develop and manifest over time and it just gets to a point where you know, like you were saying with um the man in the apartment that many people probably had no idea that that was what was going on inside but when you do find someone it's so good to hear that there's such good systems in place to start getting help so we're going to pause and come back after our next set of commercial breaks after we come back we'll ask carolyn to talk a little bit about uh the legal side and some tips for practitioners uh for both on the prosecution and the defense side when these issues do arise and my suggestion is that there may be several practitioners that come into situations where they've got an element of hoarding or hoarding behavior and if they've otherwise not worked with that they may not uh, know what to do so we'll ask for some general tips so we're going to pause again uh, for our next set of commercial sponsors and our third sponsor of the day is Jim Thompson of the Get Clients Now program if you want to get more clients now there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to Jim Thompson's program called Get Clients Now will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Please visit LawyersMarketingResource.com and also check out the testimonials on their website. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by emailing him at J-E-T, like Jet, J-E-T, at MidwestConsultants.net. That's plural, MidwestConsultants.net. So J-E-T at MidwestConsultants.net for Jim Thompson and the Get Clients Now program. Our fourth commercial sponsor of the day is Law Publicist Communications. Law Publicist Communications is a legal marketing and public relations agency serving Chicagoland lawyers and business professionals. Many people hire us to write their marketing material, blogs, and to promote and manage their webinars and events. We really are a full-service agency. You would be surprised at how many ways we can help you. Give us a call at 312-854-7149 to see how we can help. That telephone number again is 312-854-7149. We want to also remind our listeners to share our broadcast links as you find them in your social networks. Many people do find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages. We thank you all for your support in sharing our programming. Now back to our discussion with Carolyn Wolf. We're going to talk a little bit uh, now about uh, hoarding as it comes up in the law. And uh, Carolyn, if we could talk a little bit uh, about what practitioners should know, um, whether you're in a case uh, in the prosecution or the defense side, not that hoarding is a criminal uh, issue, but that it can come up in several different uh, cases in different practice areas, and uh, practitioners who are not familiar with hoarding uh, may not know what to do. So we just want to get some tips. Well, first I want to say it can come up either in the criminal law world or the civil law world. So it really crosses many or multiple legal lines. Um, very important in this area is to consult with an attorney who has expertise in this area because it's a very specialized area and it's very important to be able to understand the clinical issues as well as the legal issues um, because what's very important is in terms of clinical issues is to be able to educate the court and educate the judges as to the fact that this is a psychiatric issue um, that the danger issues are not necessarily somebody intentionally or forming the intent to hurt themselves or others, um, but that it's an outgrowth of a psychiatric illness 
that needs medical treatment or psychiatric treatment, not jail, not punishment. Um, the first thing I always do in these cases is to retain a medical expert or a psychiatric expert. Come in, evaluate my client, um, help me to understand what aspects of um, psychology and psychiatry are at play here, um, and start to formulate a plan um, to present to the court to demonstrate and, again, move it more into the clinical world and out of the legal world as much as possible. So it's always important to know the details of the clinical picture in order to be able to know, um, to come up with a legal plan of of, of attack, so to speak. Um, in addition to doing the clinical evaluation so that you know psychiatrically what's going on and what the signs and symptoms are, um, you also need your expert to help offer treatment options. So we can go into court and say we'll get case management, we'll do a commitment to a hospital, we'll get an outpatient program, um, we'll get visiting nurse to come in and assist. You know, We'll get somebody to intervene from a clinical perspective um, while we're dealing with the legal issues. Um, it's very important to have continuing oversight that reassures the court and the litigants that somebody is watching and that it won't rise to this level um, again because somebody is, is keeping an eye on this. Um, and it's often very difficult to balance individual rights and privacy with safety of the community. And so you always walk that line of wanting to intervene, needing to intervene, um, needing to address the safety and security issues of the individual and of the community at large um, with um, the individual's rights and, and privacy rights and the fact that you know what you do in the privacy of your own home is your business. And to a great extent, the state should not be intervening in that. Um, so there's a very delicate balance that needs to be walked. And again, you want people with expertise in this area who can translate the clinical into the legal and vice versa and come up with a plan to present to the court as well as a plan of, in, of intervention to assure people that it won't go back to the way it was and that we're moving forward in addressing the issues as well as keeping everybody involved in the case safe. So that would oh. that would be I, my suggestion. <laughs> a follow up, just a follow up question. Something you touched upon: um, privacy rights, and uh, uh, maybe it just. I have a, I have several clients who work in uh, different areas that privacy rights comes up pretty often, and it was. I heard someone suggest that. I don't remember if it was a case that someone wanted to file, or if it was already going, but it involved privacy rights, it involved defamation, and it involved accusations of hoarding, and a person was a person was accused of hoarding, may have lost a job over it. Um, the idea was just that there had been no clinical diagnosis, and just the rumor mill flying, this person felt very damaged by, by hoarding. I don't know whatever happened to the case. It wasn't even here in Illinois or New York. I, I think it might have been California, but... Um, what are your thoughts on some of the privacy rights involved, and have you seen cases where a plaintiff's case is in defamation and such and other uh, those uh, lines of cases regarding hoarding and the accusation thereof? Well, usually it's, it's hoarding in addition to other issues, um, other conflicts that have gone on in the building, personality issues, threatening behavior, um, defensive behavior. So... I don't know that I've seen a case that's solely based on hoarding behavior, 
but usually that comes into play with other behaviors that are going on. As I said, you know, leaving garbage outside of their apartment, um, obstructing, you know, people's ability to walk safely down a hallway, um, and then they get challenged for that, and then you see the aggressive behavior that may manifest. So it sort of spirals along from that and becomes part of, you know, a bigger picture. Now, in terms of defamation, you know, if in fact the person is shown to actually have the illness, um, defamation would be a hard case to make. And I'm not saying that people should go around and broadcast, you know, somebody's psychiatric illness or or diagnosis. Um, But you don't usually see it in those type of true defamation types of cases. Um, and that's where, again, getting a an expert evaluation right off the bat is key um, because in a defamation case, you know, the defense is that it's true um, or not true. And so you want to know specifically from the clinicians what they're dealing with. And then we pull apart these evaluations to know, you know, what's defensible, what's not, um, what we can use in a negotiation to bargain with, to maybe bring about a settlement, um, what causes of action we can get knocked out based on somebody's psychiatric illness, and and so on. The problem would be, though, to uh, operate as if there's a psychiatric illness before one has been diagnosed. I think that the di- that's that's where I see. Uh, you know, more of the sticking points is if someone was diagnosed and is getting treatment that's different from someone, um, you know, who people just suggest they're, you know, that they're a hoarder and the person is upset about it. Right, and that's where you get into characterization. That's where you get into the name-calling issues. Um, you know, it, it, there is a very clear clinical picture for this, but most lay people are not able to think about that part of it. It's just the behavior, leaving garbage in the hallway, and it's obstructing my ability to walk, you know, safely down the hallway. So you must be a hoarder, because who else would leave garbage outside? Right. Um, and you kind of get into that, and that's why when you represent these families or you get caught up in the the court system, it's important important to find out what the clinical picture really is and then tease apart what's clinical, what's legal, and how do you balance one with the other to bring about the best defense, offer the court the most security that you can, um, and get some of the causes of action knocked out based on actual facts of what's going on with that individual. Mm-hmm. Um, also, to follow up on a statement uh, you made about informing the court in that it, it really is the duty of a savvy practitioner to uh, really let the court know what's going on with these issues, are there some good organizations to which you belong or good resources for those trying to learn more? Um, you know, it's just a matter of doing a literature search. Um, you know, whenever we have these cases, I mean, I have a whole file of articles of cases across the country and just call on them, um, you know, when I need them for a particular case. That's the beauty of having law clerks and law students and um, associates who do a lot of this research for me. Um, But it's a matter of really just collecting and then updating whatever the the most updated clinical literature is as well as legal literature and compiling that in order to, um, you know, to really educate the court. We spend a lot of time in this practice educating the court as to what psychiatric illness is, what are the dangers or not, what is, what are the stigmas that they hear about that we try to dispel. 
um, offering up, you know, treatment alternatives that our experts um, work with us to develop and, you know, really just let the court, you know, educate the court and as well as other attorneys in the case um, that it's just not what you see on TV, but these are real people, real life, and, you know, very much medical psychiatric issue more than somebody who gets up in the morning and has the intent to put people in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm assuming that it's a very well-published uh, area of law. Um, what are some good things that you, someone should look for in the background of a person who is practicing in this area? Is it common for people to have also the, the health care background? Is that, how much of a prerequisite should that be? Uh, well, it's certainly very helpful. It certainly helps to know because it's it's important to be familiar with what the clinical options are um, as well as the legal options. So having some sort of clinical background or utilizing experts and learning the language, learning the terminology, learning to trust your experts, learning to to work back and forth off of one another from the legal to the medical and back and forth um, is very helpful in these cases. Um, there are very few attorneys who have the mental health um, expertise um, because it's just not that broad an area um, for people to practice in. Um, but it's also important to know the, the medical and psychiatric systems um, we know what resources we can access. We know what treatment alternatives are available. We understand the involuntary commitment process. We understand the guardianship process. So we can call on all the various mental health legal options that may be available in order to present those to a court or to work with families on, um, you know, on getting an intervention be before something bad does happen. So uh, we're going to take another pause for our final set of breaks, and then afterwards, if we could talk a little bit more about uh, guardianship, as you suggested, and some of the other mental health legal options uh, to the extent someone is listening who feels that they know someone who might have a problem with hoarding, where they should go for some resources. So we're going to pause for our final set of commercial sponsors and our practice management resources we bring you at the three-quarters point through our show. Uh, for practice management resources, we have ABA Publishing and the ABA Web Store. This week's title is A Portable Guide to Federal Conspiracy Law, Tactics and Strategies for Criminal and Civil Cases, Second Edition. Conspiracy, a word that connotes intrigue, complexity, and headaches for the unprepared lawyer. You need information on federal conspiracy law quickly and easily. You need trial tactics and strategies and case law to back up your arguments. A Portable Guide to Federal Conspiracy Law, Second Edition, gives you the information you need when you need it. This newly updated version is practical, well-organized, and takes a look at federal conspiracy law. You'll have ready access to relevant cases without trudging through the footnotes and complicated citations. The table of contents and index are arranged to directly direct you quickly to the pertinent subject matter. Conspiracy defense or prosecution can be as complicated and murky as the subject itself. This portable, easy-to-use guide addresses the complex issues of federal conspiracy cases and provides you with expert advice. 
Next, from the Law Bulletin Publishing Company, when you subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, you will receive up-to-date legal news from Chicago and around Illinois. Also, check out the Law Bulletin blog, Attorneys in Transition, which offers advice and tips to those lawyers going through a flux in their career. It also hosts a monthly career seminar for lawyers in flux. I am one of the weekly advice columnists published by the Attorneys in Transition site, and I do hope that you stop by and leave your comments at attorneysintransition.com. Now, getting back to our show, uh, Carolyn, are you still there? Yes, I am. I am hearing something really odd in my uh, in my in my ear here. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to turn off whatever little song is playing. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Sorry about that technical glitch. Um, all right, so back to our show. We were talking about uh, some of the me- some of the different mental legal health options, um, and you mentioned guardianship. So let me ask you a little bit more about mental and legal health options uh, for someone who believes that they know someone who may uh, be going down the road and needing some help with uh, hoarding. Okay, well, there are um, crisis acute legal mental health legal interventions which are available in in a crisis or someone who's severely decompensated and needs a very quick intervention um many states have what are called mental health warrant statutes you go to a judge you say someone suffers from a psychiatric illness they're currently a substantial risk of harm or danger to themselves or others and they need to be evaluated in a psychiatric emergency room that's a very adversarial but an emergent type of intervention, and sometimes there's no alternative but to utilize that system. Um, all states have involuntary commitment statutes. So again, somebody is mentally ill and a substantial risk of harm or a danger to themselves or others, um, and meet that criteria can be involuntarily committed to a psychiatric facility. And sometimes even in cases involving hoarders, this is the situation and they meet the criteria and need to be hospitalized. Um, also, in terms of the legal world, many states have what are called outpatient commitment or court-ordered outpatient treatment statutes where somebody is court-ordered to follow a treatment plan, um, comply with services that are offered, live in a particular place, um, and has a court order which directs um, the type of treatment that they need to be involved in. And then, as you mentioned, um, most states have guardianship statutes where someone is appointed to manage the individual's personal needs or medical needs um, or general living needs, um, as well as property management or their financial management. And different states vary as to what the parameters are for the appointment of a guardian, um, how much a guardian can be empowered to do what, and so on. Um, New York's guardianship statute is very broad. It allows for the plan to be narrowly tailored, specific to the needs of the individual, and to specific um, specific to what the safety issues are and the need for intervention, whether it's medical and or uh, property management. Um, and, and, you know, that's somebody who in general is in the community but needs services brought in, is unable to really navigate the system by themselves, whether it's the healthcare system or the mental health system or the financial systems. So someone needs to be appointed by the court and empowered to make decisions on behalf of the individual. Um, when we get to the point where we really don't fit the legal criteria or there are no 
legal mental health options available, that's when in my practice we spend a lot of time developing interventions or um, responses that I like to call are just our think out of the box or our creative interventions using clinicians, using social services, using support services um, to bring together some way to intervene in someone's life in a positive way to either prevent them from ending up in the legal system or to keep them safe or to keep people around them safe, again, before it gets to the level of needing the court system to intervene. So if someone, those are very, those are several options, and I appreciate those. I thank you. Um, if someone is thinking of hiring an attorney, um, and they're thinking of going through, you know, an intervention or looking at a potential involuntary commitment. Um, are there some things or resources or places that they should stop, check, and go through a checklist before calling a lawyer? Um, well, certainly the internet, as we all know, is you know a very available resource these days. You can Google mental health attorney or mental health intervention. Um, there are a whole array of organizations and of services. Um, but often attorneys, I mean, I know I spend a lot of time just doing case intakes. Families will call and say, this is my situation. Do I need an attorney or or not? What, what direction should I follow? What are some of the initial options? Um, so I would hope that, you know, many attorneys would be willing to just sort of do these initial intakes in order to discern whether or not they're the person who can offer, you know, the most up-to-date and and practical legal advice, as well as um, whatever clinical interventions might be necessary. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I just I fear that so many people don't know what to do if the phone rings. I mean, here it's a problem. You know, so many people are spending a lot of time in legal marketing and getting their phone to ring, and they're getting calls from things outside their practice area because people are just looking for, um, you know, you know, Manhattan attorney, uh, you know, so they're going to get, uh, who knows whom they might call uh, until they get to the right person. Um, what are your suggestions for practitioners out there who get a case or, or someone on the phone that's in this hoarding area, you know, in and they talk about hoarding? Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, well, my suggestion, just as if somebody asked me to do um, an area of practice that, you know, is not something that I'm expert in, is to look around either through the bar associations or on the Internet for somebody that has this type of expertise. Um, I We very often co-counsel cases, so I don't necessarily become the sole counsel. Um, often I'm brought in just for my mental health legal expertise, and that's mm-hmm. the portion of a case that I will get involved in, work with other attorneys in other areas, whether it's a custody matter and a matrimonial case, a landlord-tenant matter, a co-op matter. I come in as the mental health legal expert and just handle that portion Um, of hiring experts, preparing for trial, knowing what questions to ask, um, knowing what what options there are available that we can offer to the court. Um, And if people are willing to work together in these types of cases, it's not necessarily an all or none. I mean, there are attorneys who call me and say, I have no idea what I'm doing in this area, just here's the referral and, you know, you handle the matter. And other attorneys who will say, 
Um, you know, it's a specialized area, but it involves psychiatric issues or hoarding or whatever the case may be, can you join us in, you know, just addressing those issues and directing us and helping us develop a strategy specific to the hoarding issue um, along with whatever other issues are going on? Mm-hmm. So and We're pretty flexible. Well, we that's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd assume so. Well, I, I just I think with again with a lot of these cases popping up in the media, and um, you know, I heard of one where uh, someone, one of the cases I heard about, someone was trying to get the property from a neighbor. Um, it was a neighborhood where most of the houses were teardowns and newer construction, and you had the one house that uh, somebody really wanted. Someone had you know owned the house outright, lived there forever, and had a lot of animals. Animals. And um, the, that person, I'm not, I really, I'm not sure whatever happened to it, but I, there was a suggestion by the lawyer I was talking to um, that the neighbors wanted to call the police on this woman and have her investigated for hoarding uh, so that they could get her booted out of the house. And so the person was looking around for experts, and I realized that this person is a, you know, primarily a plaintiff's lawyer, really had no idea what to do with the case, just knew that, oh, it was suggested that they were hoarding, so there must be a case there. Mm-hmm. So it's good to hear that um, that you're doing outreach to partner up with many of these lawyers who, who don't really know. Um, can you give us some contact information? Information so that uh, people listening to the program today can contact you and uh, ask for some questions or to you know maybe get some sense of direction. Sure. Well, the firm's website is Abrams www.abramslaw.com. A B is in boy, R A M is in Mary, S L A W dot com, and you can go to the the firm's general website and click on the mental health law practice. Or click on my name, Carolyn Wolf, and um, you know it'll give you the contact information, uh, the email that's available, and uh, a phone number to call if if um, you know if that's the way you want to go. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the best way to um, to reach my practice and and my law firm. Very good. Well, I am so glad that you were on the show today to talk a little bit more about some of the more complex legal issues that we normally don't hear about when uh, when hoarding comes up. Again, you know, popping up, we hear all the time um, cases of people trapped in their apartments and homes and can't get out, or those um, with too many animals. I mean, it's all over the news, and it's I think something that people are going to be hopefully learning more about, and that this is a uh, you know, a, a, a clinical issue, and there is a diagnosis to be made and help for people out there who do suffer uh, from these. Uh, Carolyn, any f- final words? Uh, no, I thank you for inviting me, and um, any other information that I can provide, I'm happy to do that. Okay, wonderful. So I'd like to thank Carolyn Wolf for her uh, contributions today on our topic of hoarding and uh, all things that uh, consumers and attorneys should know about the situation. I also want to thank our commercial sponsors for today as well as our listeners. Our commercial sponsors for today were Nancy K. Ducharme of the Law Offices of Nancy K. Ducharme, Mary Erlane of Peak Marketing and Sales, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group, and Law Publicist Communications. You can catch our archive shows on our website. Go to the main corporate website of ALRP. 
pra.com forward slash Law Talk Radio for archive broadcasts. You can also just search for Law Talk Radio in Google. By way again of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice chart on our show does not constitute legal advice. Communications with attorneys on the show does not give rise to attorney-client relationships. Law Talk Radio is produced by Law Publicist Communications, an ALRPRA incorporated agency. Law Talk Radio does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by guests, and all callers do have the right to remain confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Our Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and also to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences tips, tools, and practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With our guests and listeners located worldwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use a socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Publicist Communications and Law Talk Radio, and we thank you for your time.